We talked about the book of Esther. We introduced the book of Esther um, uh, last week, and the book is named for the primary character. It isn't written by Esther. We don't really know who the author of this book was. Uh, it is possibly, it was possibly authored by Mordecai himself. You know Mordecai. How many of you know the story of Esther? You, you, okay, most of you in here probably know the story of Esther. I want to tell you something. If you hadn't read through it, it's, uh, it's a fantastic book to read back through. And it's a fantastic story. But it's possible that Mordecai was the author. We just don't know who or an anonymous Persian Jew. Um, and um, the events of the, the book are related to a remnant of Israel that has returned from captivity in Babylon. They returned to uh, to Jerusalem with a task. The task is uh, to rebuild, really, the whole structure of Jerusalem, uh, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls. This is all part of the, uh, the long-range plan, you might say, of these exiles who are returning. They're a remnant because while they are in captivity, uh, the, uh, the Syrians really overrun the Holy Land. But these come back, they begin, and it's... It's a, a time of conflict. Esther, the book of, uh, of Esther, uh, it relates to the exiles that stayed in Babylon. So you had the group that goes, Haggai was talking to the group that went back home. Esther is about the ones who stayed behind in uh, Babylon or in Persia, the uh, Medo-Persian uh, empire. And so what we'll begin doing tonight and what I want to be, uh, do with you uh, right now is I want to talk with you about what started all the stuff that we commonly think of when we think of the book of Esther. Now, if you've been through these overviews, you know we're going to take what we call significant uh, passages in the book. Um, we're not going to work through, this is not a verse-by-verse -verse study. I've done that many times with you over the years, but this is an overview. So I'm going to pull out key passages, and we'll examine those in a verse-by-verse -verse kind of way, but not every verse. And so let me set the stage. We're going to begin tonight in verse 10. We're going to read through the end of chapter 1, and you can see by the outline above what I, I'm going to talk to you about, what I call the king's conduct and the king's Council. Now let me set up what's going on. Uh, King uh, Ahasuerus, uh, it, and by the way, that's um, that's the Hebrew name for Xerxes. Sometimes, you, so if you hear Xerxes or Ahasuerus, that's the same person. Okay, and uh, one is the Hebrew name. Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. Xerxes is the Greek name. Uh, Ahasuerus is the king. He's ruling over. He has done something pretty significant. He has united the Medes and the Persians together coming out of the Babylonian uh, Empire um, where the Persians conquered. And so the, these two warring factions, the Medes and the Persians, both of them very powerful, um, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, he does something that hasn't been done, ha had not been done in a long time. He unites those two those two uh, groups, and they become one empire. So you sometimes hear about the Media, Media or Medo-Persian Empire. By the way, it's a part of the statue in Daniel. Remember that he saw the Babylon, Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire and the, all of the different empires. Well, this is one of them. And Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is the king. 
And uh, he has united these kingdoms. It, it, look at verse 1. It says that he, he has united them from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. It, that's the Xerxes that we're talking about. You say, why did they even mention how many provinces? Because there was another Xerxes. There was Xerxes II. And so this is distinguishing which one of the Xerxes. This is the one that ruled over 127 provinces. And in the third year of his reign, it tells us that he threw a big banquet. Now, they're having these kind of skirmish battles with the, with the Greeks. And they have dominated the Greeks and will dominate the Greeks until a man named Alexander the Great begins to lead the Greek Empire to its prominence. But in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign, and y'all just bear with me with this bit of biblical history because it sets up what I want to talk about. In the third year of his reign, and these battles that are still going on with Greece have not, haven't threatened them really, but he knows more is coming. And so he has this banquet and he calls his his mostly scholars believe his military leadership together and then some uh, some influencers in the empire that's how we would say it today some he calls them together and he throws this banquet and it goes for a week a feast for a week and it's got all the alcohol you can imagine all the food you want and there are no restraints uh, at this uh, banquet and and what he's doing, you, you can re, we're not going to read through it, but you can read through those first nine verses, and what you see is the, the, uh, the opulence of his kin. He's showing off. And they drink out of, all of them drink out of, golden goblets the, uh, made of pure gold. That's, I mean, he's doing, he's doing it up big. He's showing off uh, how powerful he is and how wealthy he is, how prominent he is to these military leaders. Some believe he gathered them there to begin uh, uh, warming them up to a conquest of, Greek, of Greece. And so he's called them there. Uh, he's called the influencers there, some officials probably from some of the provinces that, that he rules over. In other words, he's doing the political thing. And he's trying to, you know, get his team together and make sure everybody loves. So he, he, he uh, throws this lavish seven-day banquet. All right? Now, it also says that in verse 9, Queen Vashti, that's his wife, that's the queen, that she also gives a feast for the women in the palace that belong to the king. So he's doing something for the men and she's doing something for their wives, okay? So you've got these two banquets going on. Are y'all with me? That's the background uh, of what creates all the problems for him and then leads to the search for a new queen. So with that, let's pick up in verse 10. It says, On the seventh day, that's the end of the feast, okay? When the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded... And he names these eunuchs uh, that uh, serve him, that serve the king, to go to the queen and tell the queen to get her, to, to, to fix herself up and come. He wants to show her off. Now, the first thing I would tell you is, and we'll come back to some of these, is when it says, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, does anybody have an interpretation? He was drunk as a skunk. 
That's the Hebrew terminology, I think. And, and because of that, his, there's something that, um, that happens. We see displayed the king's attitude. We see his ego, we see his attitude. It's displayed when he gets drunk. You know, um, uh, alcohol makes uh, fools out of a lot of people, doesn't it? And it, uh, by the way, it doesn't matter what position, it makes uh, fools out of a lot of people. And, uh, and so the king was drunk, and he was full of himself. His attitude is, look at me, I, I have everything I want. And so, let's go on down to verse 11. So he commands these eunuchs to bring Queen Veshte before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples um, and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, do you know what's going on there? He's drunk. He's with a bunch of other drunk men. And he's got a beautiful wife. And this shows you what an idiot a, a drunk can be. He says, my wife is so pretty, I want her to come and I want y'all to gawk and lust after her and see what a lucky man I am. That's what's going on. Yes. Well, <laughs> if he was, he's just asking her, just put on the crown and nothing else. And we don't know. We don't know that. But what we do know, Glenda, is that this wasn't he saying, oh, have y'all seen my wife? She's so pretty. This was, my wife is so beautiful. I want you guys to be envious of me, and I'm going to parade her through here. And my guess is, in very little, with the crown, and you're going to see what a lucky man I am, and you're going to be envious because when you see her, you're going to lust after her. It is a lustful thing. That's what it's talking about right there. And so, because of his drunken attitude, we see the king's abuse. Uh, this is all about his abuse. In, in, in order to show the people's and the prince her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And remember, this is a man's party he's talking about. Now, uh, so this is really abuse. Uh, that's really what it is. It's the king's abuse. He's using his authority, he thinks, um, to impress his buddies and to, to abuse his wife by parading her in some form or fashion before these men uh, to create envy in them that she's his and not theirs. And by the way, do you know why the kings used eunuchs? With, with, to relate back and forth, because there was no threat of sexual immorality with a eunuch and his, the women who served in his court. And so that's why that was done. So we see the king's abuse. This is, look, this is abuse right here. That's what it is. A drunken attitude led to drunken abuse, you could say. All right? So let's go on. Verse 12 says, But Queen Vashti refused, good for her, right now but queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs and the king became enraged and his anger burned within him can you figure out the next thing the king's anger 
And why is he angry, class? Because she has rejected him publicly. She has embarrassed him. Now, I think she did the right thing. What do you think, women? Alan? Yeah. I, yeah. Did y'all hear what Alan said? That there was a, a law among the Medo-Persian. By the way, when something became a law in the Medo-Persian Empire, it could not be undone. They could write another law to try to offset it, but if the law was there, it was the law. And I've heard something to that very same effect, but I haven't confirmed that. I can't say that for sure. But Alan said that there was a law, or he seems like he's read about a law that said a woman couldn't even be brought in to a group of men. Uh, I know this, that a woman, remember uh, uh, th this story about Esther at some point in time, she's not allowed to go in before the king. But some argue that is because of this and the rules were changed or new rules were added. Okay, But it's very possible, so that would even compound it. But he's the king, he's drunk, and he thinks, who's going to challenge me? And, uh, and so, uh, I think the sad thing is, is the little value he had for his wife. I think that's one of the sad things. But when she rejected him, he's a hothead. And it says, you see there, his anger burned within him. Uh, he became enraged. Who knows what, what uh, that means. But she had embarrassed him by not complying with his drunken order. And, um, and, and so it enraged him. And as a result of that, we see something else. We see the king's advisors brought into play. Uh, where, do, where do we see it? In the verses that follow. Then the king said to the wise men. Some say these were astrologers or magicians. Maybe so. We're not certain. But they knew the times. Uh, and it says... For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. They might have been astrologers. It wasn't uncommon. The kings had astrologers in their court. They had magicians. They were very superstitious. They needed people to tell them all about the, you know, what's the, the heavens, what the heavens were saying. And so that's possible. But there's no doubt that he also brought in people because of the, the uh, uh, parenthetical statement that he would refer to people who knew the law. So what he's saying is, hey, the queen has just uh, refused a direct order from the king. What legal recourse do I have? What legal recourse do I have uh, I, to, um, to respond to her? And so these advisors, look, I think this was a precedent-setting case for them. They had no previous experience in such, uh, such as, as this. This was a precedent. So they had to figure this out. There's Ron's story back there. He's one of uh, our local attorneys. 
And Ron, this was a new case for them. They'd never had to deal with a, king, a queen who had... So they s- said, what does the law say? The king says, I, wanna, I want to respond to this. Tell me what the law says. So, so uh, he calls this group of advisors, maybe some heads of the provinces, uh, some, again, these were influencers. By now, we're assuming they're all sober. But they rule like they're drunk. You see what decisions they make on the backside of this. But he brings these advisors in. And that's why I've entitled this The King's Conduct and the King's Counsel. Now, there's nothing wrong when we're in, um, in a, some kind of dilemma in getting advisors. Would you agree with that? And the Bible says there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But p- people... Be careful about the counselors that you select, right? Uh, Not all counselors are worth getting counsel from. So let me ask you a question. Uh, He turned to counselors that were the counselors he would normally go to. For the believer, when you need counsel, where do you go? That's not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you, where, where do you go or where do you think you ought to go? Some, somebody tell me. Give me one. All right. Uh, first, you seek the Lord, don't you? How do you do that? You do that in prayer, right? He is a counselor to us, and we talk to Him in prayer. I, God, I need wisdom. I was helping a young couple recently making some decisions, and uh, and, and praying for them and t- encouraging them to pray. And they did. They prayed and fasted and that sort of thing. Uh, turn to the Lord first. I told you this story years ago. You, you've already forgotten it. You don't remember anything I say. But I told you this story years ago about a family. They had an aging family member. and the, But the family member was, um, how should I say it? A hypochondriac. Y'all know what that is? Do we have any in here? <laughs> a hypochondriac is, maybe you've had some in your family before, right? And I mean, there's always something. There, if one thing gets better, then there's something else that has flared up. And there's always something in there. It's always something going on with it. And it may be in some cases. But uh, this family had a hypochondriac. The, 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 mo- the mom was a hypochondriac. And there was always something. And frankly... Uh, the doctor told the family, she's fine. And, and so there's nothing more I can do. And y'all have got to convince her of that. So the family met with her and said, Mom, the son said, Mom, the doctor says that, that you're fine, that, that uh, there, there's no problem, you're okay, and that you don't need to worry. Uh, and um, so he says there's nothing more he can do. And... The son said, so mom, why don't you just pray about it? She shook her head. She said, pray about it. Has it finally come to that? <laughs> Did y'all get that? That wasn't a courtesy laugh? Um, well, look, it shouldn't finally come to that. It should start with that, Right? We take it to the Lord. So that's first where you're going to go for your counsel, right? Where, where else will you go for counsel? Okay, what does that mean? 
Experts. Our world is full of experts. The experts. Well, okay, some people have had, let's say, experience. <laughs> um, I tell my staff, they get tired of hearing it sometimes, but when we're making some decisions sometimes, and I listen, I say, you hear this, and, I, and then and sometimes I say, no, I say, we're not going to go there, and they get tired of me saying, I'll say, because I got mileage. I got mileage. That's experience, isn't it? It's not always accurate, though. Spir uh, ex these folks probably had some experience, but they were godless counselors, weren't they? But we can go to those who are experienced and are godly. Right? Uh, I still call my mentor. He's 85 years old and uh, still doing fantastic. I call him. He's out in Dallas, Texas. And every once in a while, I'll call him. He calls me. And, and, uh, but if I have something, I just say, Bill, I just need some wisdom about something. I want, need to make sure I'm on the right road. and not. And why? Because there's wisdom in godly counselors. And he's a godly man. So experience. Where else are you going to go for counsel? The Word of God. I didn't know if anybody's going to say that. The Word of God is a counselor to you. Uh, it is a powerful counselor to you, right? And so that's why, again, you've got to spend a time in the Word of God. Let me mention something else to you about prayer, by the way, while I'm thinking about it. You know, uh, sometimes prayer uh, is not you uh, blabbering to God. Sometimes prayers, you're just sitting and listening to God. Years, I was telling the staff, I heard a guy talking about it recently, and I thought that's been my experience too. Years ago, I would find myself to start praying, and I'd just start, you know, just rattling off the religious stuff you, you pray. And I found myself doing that, and it dawned on me. One day, it's like the Lord like just ran me into a wall and said, would you stop that? And that was my experience. I thought, I heard this guy talking about it, and I thought, man, I've been there. That's a, and, and said, would you just... It was almost like God said, would you just shut up so I can speak? And I said, no, I won't do it. I've got so many. No. But, and it dawned on me, sometimes we just need to. And here's one of the practices I have when I pray now. When I pray, I say nothing for an extended period of time. I've been doing this for several years. I just try to get junk out of my head and, and get myself in a a. a a posture where I can just listen. And that is hard because if you're not careful, you'll start spouting off all the stuff you spout, right? And so sometimes if you want counsel, you've got to shut up long enough to get it. You know, does that make sense? Listening to God is prayer. Prayer is about conversation, right? If you do all the talking, He can't. So, counsel, prayer, uh, experience, godly experience, so the godly counselors, which he didn't go to. And then the Word of God. Any other sources of counsel you're going to look to? Church family, Frank, that's, that's good, the church fellowship. You've had that happen before, haven't you? where you've been around other believers, not necessarily seeking counsel, and they ended up giving you counsel they didn't know they were, and you didn't expect to get. Hello? You ever had that happen? 
And you say, they didn't even know that I needed what they had to say. Again, it goes back to what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks about the importance of our gathering together. Okay, any other, any, other, any other means of counsel in our life? How about this? Circumstances. I, be careful with this. But sometimes your circumstances are counseling you. Now, here's why I say... Now, let me ask you, why would I say be careful with that? Okay, because your feelings are involved, and what do we know about our feelings? What's that? They, they can't be trusted always. We like them, don't we? And I'm for them, as I've said many times, but they're not always reliable, are they? Right? And, and that works both ways. Sometimes when you feel it's your worst, don't look. You're, that, one day you may feel fantastic, and the next day you may feel horrible. And if you're not careful, if you let your faith be determined by how you feel, one day you'll feel great faith, and the next day you'll feel like a miserable spiritual failure. Your faith isn't dependent on your feelings, okay? And circumstances are often, our feelings are involved in circumstances. That's one of the reasons to be careful with circumstances. Any other reasons? Think about this. With circumstances, you know what we do? I don't know what it is about us, but we tend to, uh, to measure most things by circumstances in our life. In other words, I think we give circumstances way too much credit, and we push the things that are uh, 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 more significant for uh, counsel uh, below them so uh, for example in the will of God people will often just assume the will of God based purely on circumstances can the devil get involved in your circumstances to influence you to make a decision that may seem good but not be God's best yeah that's what he was trying to do with Adam and Eve in the garden right and he was pretty effective he still is so we have to be careful with our circumstances, though our circumstances can be giving counsel to us. But here's a rule. Write this rule down or memorize this rule. It's not hard, but always remember this. Your circumstances will never argue against the Word of God. And if your circumstances lead you to believe something that is contrary to the Word of God, that is not reliable counsel. Circumstances usually fit with a whole bunch of things, but they're not, the tail, uh, they're not to be the tail that wags the dog. Is that, is that clear? Okay, so any other sources of counsel? Advisors? Thank you, Ron. Preaching and Wednesday night Bible study, I mean, uh, and teaching. Um, it, it should be, shouldn't it? Um, that any place, not just my getting into the Word, but the Word being delivered to me can be a source of counsel. I can't tell you how many times. This, one of the neat things about being your pastor is that uh, many times I'll preach a message on something that God has given me, and I'll preach a message. I'll have somebody come up to me and they'll say, 
Pastor, you know that point in the sermon where you said uh, this and this and this? And I have to be honest, I, I don't remember a lot about my sermon after I preach it. I have to go look at my notes. And did I say that? And uh, I, I've had people come up and say, you know, when you said this and this, but I know I didn't say that. And they said, when you said this and this and this, God spoke to my heart. And that's what I, 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 he answered a prayer or he told me or he's and I just learned a long time ago not to go. I, I didn't say that. I, I didn't say that. You're a nut. <laughs> because they're not. Because I didn't say it, but God did. And frankly, and by the way, no one has ever come up and said, here's what you said. And God spoke to my heart and they never said something to me that I said that would have been inconsistent with God's word. And so here's what I know. God knew what they needed and God gave them something that I didn't even know that I was communicating. But that's what the spirit of God took in what I said and spoke to them. And I say, praise God. Praise God. So uh, that's another, Ron, that is another place of it should be another place uh, where God can counsel or advise us. Okay, there's one last thing before we, we go uh, tonight. We could talk about that a lot more, but I want you to see the king's actions. The king's actions. And let me just kind of wrap up here tonight with this. Uh, verses 19. So they, they call these advisors together. They're godless advisors, and so they give godless counsel and the counsel was well she doesn't need to get away with this queen vashti she she doesn't need to get away with this because here's what's going to happen did y'all read ahead did you why'd y'all do that y'all were supposed to be listening now you read ahead and and what were they did you pick up on what their concern was ah she has set a precedent. And we don't have a law, Mr. Former Judge. We don't have a law. And she set a precedent. You know what we're worried? This is a men's meeting. You can imagine this happening, right? We've got to get that woman in her place. Because all these other women, when they hear that the queen refused to obey her husband, They'll start doing it too. They'll start holding their husbands in contempt, is what the Scripture says. So they'll start saying, if she doesn't have to, I ain't doing it anymore, bud. Fix your own dinner. <laughs> Wash your own laundry. You know? I, now, that, that's kind of humorous. And, but you, you get the point, don't you? That's what they say. What, what, if all these women rebel... It'll be a women's lib movement. And we'll be in real trouble. Because most men don't want to admit they can't function very well if they don't have a good woman around them. And we got to get this thing straightened out. And so the action of the king, what does he do? Well, Mimukin is one of the spokesmen for these advisors. And uh, he is, how shall I say it in Hebrew? He's a moron. 
And so he comes at representing these advisors. He says, here's what we think you ought to do, king. So this doesn't stir women across the 127 provinces. We think you need to write a new law and send out a new law. And the law basically says that women must respect their husband and anything their husband says they are to obey. That's, a, that's a, in, in a nutshell. And it says, and it pleased the king, because he too was a moron. And it pleased the king, and so he put this out, and by the way, that became the law of the Medes and the Persians. It became a law that could not be revoked. And so this, this potential uh, a female revolt was squashed by this this uh, law. And by the way, Queen Vashti was, was um, uh, herself, she was abandoned. She could no longer, it says, part of the law, she can no longer go into, she, we don't know what happened to her. We don't know if they threw her out of the palace, if they imprisoned her. We don't know what the king did, but she was never again allowed to come before the king. Uh, she had embarrassed him by not uh, doing what he said, and now he responds with this retaliatory kind of, okay, this is what you'll never come. Now, something tells me that she probably said, if, praise God. <laughs> but <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what happened to her. But there are some outside sources that tell us actually she was a very beautiful woman but he was also a very handsome king that he was very tall and he was uh he had been a kind of a warrior type so so who knows what what happened but i i will tell you this within this was the third year of his reign he lasted four more years and they were, the Medes and the Persians were conquered by the Greeks. And so this was his third year. By his seventh year, he wasn't who he had been. So the kings, we can learn something from the king. Amen? We learn something about relationships. We learn something about our responsibilities. And we learn something. I think the biggest lesson in there is be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you listen to. Make sure you have the right uh, source for your counsel. Okay?